Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. You're listening to the Indo Daily, but first. When I got out to the Wicklow Mountains, when I came to the end of the line, I, I felt this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'm Nicola Talent, and every week you can hear stories about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld on my podcast, Crime World. This was a stitch-up from start to end. I talk to those who get up close and personal with gangsters, mobsters and notorious criminals. They have taught of every conceivable way of disguising cocaine. Crime World is available wherever you get your podcasts. 50 years ago, on Sunday, the 30th of January, 1972, British soldiers opened fire on civilians in Derry. 13 people died on the day, and one person died of heart failure four months later. Today, on the Indo-Daily, we remember Bloody Sunday. The organisers of this civil rights march promised that this would be The army have said throughout the day that they hope to use minimum force. But three hours after the procession began, this has ended up, as dusk comes onto the bog side, with the worst ever confrontation between the army and the Catholic people of the Cragen and Bogside. Father, how many dead have you seen in the Bogside? Appearing to be dead. There are the three in that Saracen car. There are two men lying at the end of this block of flats. There's another man at least very close to being dead. There's one, there are two others up there. I'm told that there are some more in these flats here that I haven't seen yet. I would say there are probably about four dead at this moment. Uh, I don't know what those are doing, whether they're alive or dead. But they seem to be very dead and they're thrown in as if they were dead meat. I'm Siobhan Maguire and joining me is Martina Devlin, author and Irish independent columnist. Martina, here we are 50 years on, but Bloody Sunday remains etched in our memories. Can you take us back to Northern Ireland in 1972, maybe set the scene for us? Bloody Sunday was a watershed moment in Northern Ireland. There had been escalating civil disorder before it happened and rioting across the region following introduction of internment without trial in August 1971. So in January 1972, the Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, Brian Faulkner, banned all parades and marches until the end of the year. The Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association, which was led by John Hume and Ivan Cooper and others, had intended to hold an anti-internment march in Derry later that month. 
To prevent rioting, the authorities decided to allow it to proceed into the Catholic areas of the city, but to stop it from reaching Guildhall Square, as planned by the organisers. And this was a far-reaching decision. So, the march went ahead on the afternoon of Sunday, January the 30th. There were about 10 to 15,000 people on it. Many more were joining in along the route. As it neared the city centre, its path was blocked by British Army barriers and the organisers redirected the march uh, down Rossville Street, intending to hold the rally at Free Dairy Corner. Instead, there were going to be speeches there. One of the local MPs, Bernadette Devlin, for example, was waiting to speak. Now, some of the crowd spotted... Paras occupying a derelict building and they began throwing stones at the windows. This was shortly before 4pm and in response the Paras opened fire. Once the paratroopers went into the bog side there seemed to have been a very large number of casualties. Well I suppose large, uh, five is quite large in these circumstances, it's unfortunate but when we got up there past William Street here where we're standing and uh, up towards Rossville Flats uh, we came under fire. Uh, we came under fire from the bottom of the flats, from the flats. We were also petrol-bombed, and uh, some acid, in fact, was poured on us from the top of the flats. Local people are saying that you used excessive force when you went in there. Well, what is force? If you're being fired at, you return fire, and they know that perfectly well. How many gunmen do you feel you've hit in the bogside? Well, I'm told from my quicksit trip, you must understand it's a very quicksit trip, that three gunmen were hit. We have not got the weapons, but this is the usual thing. We saw people come forward. I'm not going to say that I saw weapons taken away, because I don't know yet. I have not spoken to the men on the ground, although I was forward when the shooting was going on. You have no worries about this action? None at all. Local people have also said that you were disrespectful, where troops were disrespectful and flung around the bodies of, of dead boxiders. Well, I'm sure we did not. Uh, in fact, I was there when those bodies were recovered, and I ordered, in fact, the vehicle to go forward uh, to pick them up. We did not know at that stage whether they were dead or whether they were wounded. And a vehicle went forward under the very real threat of fire because we were still being fired at at that stage. How do you feel about today's operation in the Bogside? Well, I think any of these sort of operations are unfortunate. It should, uh, we shouldn't have to do it, but they put us in a position where we, we can do no other. When we're fired at, we must protect ourselves. I might stop you there before we recall the horrors of that day. I might even ask you to go back that little bit further and maybe because you touched on some really interesting points, um, like the internment without trial. Well, that's what happened. Internment without trial involved the mass arrest and internment of people suspected of being involved with the IRA, whether or not they were. Um, there was also an issue around civil rights in Northern Ireland, um, which was why the Civil Rights Association had been set up. There was widespread gerrymandering. There was um, the, the concept of one person, one vote didn't exist. And I might ask you, Martina, just to explain gerrymandering, because it is a term that we hear quite often in relation to um, uh, Derry in particular. Um, what is it and how, how was it affecting um, people's lives, Catholic lives in, in Derry at the time? Well, it was used to help or hinder a particular demographic so that, for example, boundaries were constructed to guarantee Protestant supremacy. 
it's when a political group changes a voting district to create a result. So it meant in real terms that it was very difficult, for example, for Catholics to get housing. And the importance of Catholics having housing was that it then gave the head of the household the right to vote in local elections. So you were able to help shape your community. Now, by way of example, my mother was born in what was then the Free State, and she had the right to vote there. As a young woman, she moved to London, and she had the right to vote there. She married my father in her mid-twenties and moved to Oma, and she lost the right to vote there. And this was a situation that was tolerated in what was regarded as the United Kingdom. People were treated differently in Northern Ireland. I should say I'm talking about local elections, not national elections. They were important, as I explained, because local elections shaped your community. And for example, housing was allocated by local authorities. Um, And another point you made was in relation to the uh, civil rights movement and these protests that were being organised. And actually, globally at the time, there was a huge increase in civil rights um, awareness across the world, particularly in America. And um, and and that was starting to have the knock-on effect on 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 various European countries like our own, where certain people within society were being held back. Isn't that right? The influence of Martin Luther King can't be overstated. When John Hume was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, he acknowledged Dr. King's influence. Um, you know, people were looking at their television screens and seeing what was happening around the world and realizing they didn't have to take second class treatment anymore. They could agitate, they could go on marches, they could protest. And that's what they did. But the problem is, in Northern Ireland, they were beaten off the streets when they did it. And the issue with that is that not only is a state using force against its own people, but rioting occurs then. You know, and rioting is the voice of the dispossessed. This state violence towards the people acted as a recruiting sergeant for the IRA. I mean, Bloody Sunday acted as a recruiting sergeant for the IRA, which didn't have very strong support up until that. And we had 30 years of appalling, needless violence and misery and grief and loss as a result. All those deaths were unnecessary. Dialogue and fairness could have prevented the killing. That's the real pity of it all. Like Protestant English, eh, should 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 be just appalled, isn't the word? It, it's so terrible. I, I just can't express my feelings. I couldn't sleep last night. Any half-civilized person must have felt sick, sick as could be yesterday when, when they saw dead bodies lying around the place, innocent people lying on the ground being shot by British troops, just coldly murdered. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it makes you think that it, what is the whole point? Uh, Christians, the wild animals out in the jungle wouldn't have been any worse. But, uh, um, words really fade me. You know, you could use the pole, stunned, but what's 14 people dead? Words don't bring them back. 14 innocent people, they were not on the wanted list, they were not gunmen, they were not petrol bombers. They were people, it could have been me, it could have been my wife, it could have been my family, it could have been anybody here, it could have been any people. There were lots of people out of that protest yesterday who 
never have broken even the most minor law in their lives. Perfectly good, honest, law-abiding, even British law and order, which is not a very good law and order, they even kept it. And it could have been them. Apparently, as far as actually any person who moved up from the ground was shot yesterday. And whether they were facing the regime or had their backs turned them, it didn't matter. I'm going to ask you to bring us back to that day and pick up where you left off, Martina. It's uh, just before four o'clock. Um, the paratroopers have been brought in. Um, who are, this this kind of the, they were the real bad boys of of um, that particular unit within the army, um, and. Stones were thrown, soldiers responded with rubber bullets, tear gas and water cannon, and then it just escalated. Another appalling decision was made to unleash the paras on the crowd, to send them onto the streets to arrest people. Naturally, everybody bolted. And the soldiers began firing into the mass of running people. No effort was made to distinguish between civil rights protesters and people who'd been throwing stones at the soldiers in what was generally viewed as a little light rioting and not uncommon at that time. Fourteen people died. Seven of them were teenagers. Thirteen were killed outright and another man died four months later. His death is attributed to his injuries. And in all, 26 people were either killed or injured by the paratroopers. Many of the victims were shot while fleeing from the soldiers. Some took bullets in the back. Some were shot while trying to help the wounded. One man was shot going to the aid of his son who was killed. And others were injured by rubber bullets, by shrapnel. By batons. Two were run down by army vehicles, and this was the highest number of people killed in a shooting incident during the conflict, and it's considered the worst mass shooting in Northern Irish history. A vestige of trust that the people here may have retained in British Army impartiality and justice has now completely evaporated, and the cold logic with which they're putting forward this contention is based on the single simple fact, as they see it, that 13 of their men and boys were shot dead by the British soldiers here yesterday, that not a single British soldier was shot or injured by a bullet, this despite the fact that the British are persistently claiming that these men were shot by the people of the Bogside as they came in, shot first. The casualty, the death figures and the injury figures alone are sufficient, according to the people here, to support their case of willful murder by the British Army here in Derry yesterday. And now, this is Derry today. The paras were hard men chosen deliberately for Derry, and it was stupidity on stilts with the wolves' cameras there. You see, in Derry, unlike Ballymurphy, which had happened five months earlier and had involved the Paris as well, um, nine people were shot then too, and a tenth man died of a heart attack subsequently. Unlike Ballymurphy, the world's media were in Derry and events unfurled under TV and newspaper cameras. Reporters witnessed what happened. And what they saw corroborated what the people of Derry said and contradicted the version of events 
put out immediately by the British Army. Martina, there's that um, incredible uh, footage from um, that day, Bloody Sunday, the Bogside Massacre, where you saw Father Edward Daly, um, uh, you know, help uh, with the help of people carry uh, a wounded um, child um, in front of the soldiers. And he's waving this bloodied white handkerchief. I mean, the images were just so powerful and so distressing and so disgraceful. This is an iconic image from the Troubles. The priest bent low, crouching, running forward, waving his handkerchief, a bloodstained handkerchief, I think. And men are carrying a 17-year-old boy, Jackie Duddy. Father Daly, later Bishop Daly, uh, spoke about it. He said afterwards that he was running, running away. And so was Jackie Duddy. He didn't know his name at the time. And he noticed this boy draw alongside him and laugh. And he thought it was because the boy thought it was funny to see a priest running. And then immediately after that, Jackie Duddy was shot in the back, 17. And that image shows people trying to bring him to safety. And what's really striking about that image, you can see it as a still photograph, you can see it as well as TV footage, is the soldiers are crouching and their rifles are pointing at those men and the priest trying to save Jackie Duddy. They're not helping them. And there's a real sense of that they might open fire on the priest and on the men who have gone to Jackie Duddy's aid. It's it's a very very volatile situation. Yeah, I mean you you can see you can see Father Daly and and the the people who are helping him um, carry that that seventeen year old boy, um, you know, cowering almost balking at at, at any particular sound because they were obviously so terrified that they would be the next people to be be shot at. Um, well, you know, a clerical collar was no defence because a priest was shot in Ballymurphy five months earlier. Um, Father Daly became a public figure after this. Um, he spoke up about what he saw. He'd actually administered the last rites to Jackie Duddy, who died soon after. In fact, he may well be dead in that photograph, in that footage as he's being carried. And Father Daly, Bishop Daly, later described the events as a young fellow who was posing no threat to anybody being shot dead unjustifiably. That's what he said. And Jackie Duddy's father gave, family gave Father Daly a photograph of Jackie, which he always kept on his desk right to the end of his life. Um, he gave an interview to the BBC immediately after what happened, in which he insisted, contrary to official reports, that the protesters were unarmed. Outrageous, disgraceful. I, I don't know. It's, uh, they, call, they call themselves an army. It's utterly disgraceful. Are, I you, think. are you quite sure that, that nothing was fired at them first? There was nothing fired at them, sir. So I'm absolutely oh, certain of that. I can speak of this uh, without any difficulty whatsoever because I was there. I was just standing at the flats when the Saracens moved in, first of all, and there was nothing fired at them, positively nothing fired at them whatsoever. There weren't even stones fired at them. People ran in all directions and they opened fire. 
Most people had their backs to them when they opened fire at the time. A short while ago, we filmed you leading the way with a, with a, white, with a white handkerchief. Yes. Uh, for a, uh, a party who were carrying a boy oh. who was dead or dying. Now, how was he shot? That little boy was shot when he was running away. Uh, he, he was just a little bit behind me when he fell. I heard the shot. I looked around. I saw him you dying. You saw him? Yes. And he was shot. He was he a was, young man, wasn't he? He was a young boy, I would say, about 15. Uh, there yeah. he, he didn't terrible. have a weapon? No, he, he had was nothing. He was just—he was just a young boy of at fifteen. He was—he was running. I was running too. He was—he was the local bishop where I grew up in Omel, Bishop of Derry, and I remember seeing him doing confirmations often when I was um, a kid and a teenager in Omel. And uh, I remember looking at that face under the mitre and superimposing in my own mind the face of the man crouched and. Derry streets waving that blood-stained white handkerchief. I'm glad you mentioned um, the, the Oma connections, um, Martina, because you were in primary school when Bloody Sunday happened. It affected the whole country. People were absolutely shaken by this. We had Jack Lynch, the Taoiseach at the time, uh, make a, a, a no-nonsense statement about how what had happened would not be tolerated. The government have called for the immediate withdrawal of British troops from Derry and from other areas in the north where there is a high concentration of Catholic homes. We have called too for the cessation of the harassment of the minority in the north. What's your own recollections and memories? Fear. The fear that the adults experienced filtered down to the children. The television set was on. You saw it. Parents couldn't protect their children from it. Adults were terrified. And children realized it. And the other thing is, of course, we passed soldiers going to school, going to the playground, going to the swimming pool, going to the shops. We passed soldiers and they always had rifles in their hands. Um, And of course, the police were armed as well. And there was a sense that men in uniform could turn on you without warning and open fire and that the forces of law and order were not there to protect you. Quite the reverse. A statement was issued by British Army HQ in Lisbon that evening. And the statement said, the troops came under nail bomb attack and a fusillade of 50 to 80 rounds from the area of Rostell Flats and Glenfada flats and fire was returned at seen gunmen and bombers. So it was lie woven upon lie. And the British Army's brave battle with the IRA initially made front pages of newspapers and was covered in fact by the New York Times. But people started to challenge that version of events. One of them of course was Bishop Daly and another was Bernadette Devlin. And she flew to London and wanted to put on the record of the House of Commons what happened. And this speaker refused to allow her the floor, persistently, consistently. Martina, I do want to get on to the uh, two investigations that, that 
took place into Bloody Sunday. Um, the first one was considered to be a bit of a whitewash, uh, but the second one had a very powerful outcome, didn't it? The first investigation was the widgery. It happened very soon afterwards. The report was issued 11 weeks after the events of Bloody Sunday. It was conducted by Lord Chief Justice Widgery, who was the most senior Britain, uh, judge in Britain. And interestingly, he chose to sit in a one-man court, i.e. not with fellow judges. Uh, he produced his report in April 1972. And yes, it was commonly described as a whitewash. It described the soldiers shooting as, quotes, bordering on the reckless but it accepted their claims that they shot only at gunmen and bomb throwers. So the dead and wounded continued to be characterised as bombers and IRA gunmen. And it was a blatant establishment cover-up. Lord Widgery also said that there were only about three to 5,000 people on the march when there were uh, up to 15,000. Again, downplaying the importance of the civil rights movement. But that report stood for decades until a persistent campaign spearheaded by the families led to the Savile Inquiry. This was announced in 1998 by Tony Blair, who was then Prime Minister. The Savile Inquiry ran for 12 years, it cost £200 million sterling, and Lord Savile found that the British Army fired first and had unarmed civilians. He found that the majority shot, were shot in the back as they fled or while trying to help others. Report, Lord Savile said, the firing by soldiers of one para on Bloody Sunday caused the deaths of 13 people and injury to a similar number, none of whom was posing a threat of causing death or serious injury. What happened on Bloody Sunday strengthened the provisional IRA, increased nationalist resentment and hostility towards the army, and exacerbated the violent conflict of the years that followed. Savile concluded, Bloody Sunday was a tragedy for the bereaved and the wounded, and a catastrophe for the people of Northern Ireland. Bloody Sunday didn't get buried, despite the establishment's best attempts, because the families refused to give up. They really resented the way their relatives were vilified. And Martina, then, of course, we had um, an apology from Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron. People were astonished by how fulsome the apology was. What happened on Bloody Sunday was both unjustified and unjustifiable. It was wrong. Lord Savile concludes that the soldiers of the support company who went into the bog side did so as a result of an order which should not have been given by their commander. David Cameron, who was then Prime Minister, set the record straight in the House of Commons and he said that he was deeply patriotic, that he never wanted to believe anything bad about his country, never wanted to call into question the behaviour of its army, <laughs> whom he said he believed to be the finest in the world. But then he said, the conclusions of this report are absolutely clear. There is no doubt. There is nothing equivocal. There are no ambiguities. And then he said what happened in Bloody Sunday was both unjustified and both unjustifiable. And it was wrong. So there was some truth telling finally. And 
Virginia Woolf reminds us, if you don't tell the truth about yourself, you can't tell it about other people. And that apology did salve wounds in Derry. This was a citywide and in many ways a province-wide and country-wide wound. But that apology was very important. And then following it, police began a murder investigation into the killings. Only one soldier was charged with murder, Soldier F, but the case was dropped several years later when evidence was deemed inadmissible. So no one has ever been held accountable for those 14 deaths. There's a saying, even the gods can't change history. The facts speak for themselves. And here are those 14 names. Jackie Duddy, Michael Kelly, Hugh Gilmore, William Nash, John Young, Michael McDade, Kevin McElhinney, James Ray, William McKinney, Jared McKinney, Jared Donaghy, Patrick Doherty, Bernard McGuigan, John Johnston. Let there be justice though the world should perish. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's Indo Daily was presented and produced by myself with research by Tabitha Monaghan and sound design by John Smith. Archive clips with thanks to independent.ie, RTE and its extensive archives, BBC Archives, ITN Archives and BBC Radio Northern Ireland. If you enjoy the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review.